please consider making a donation to the Historian's Podcast Yearly Fund Drive. You'll find the link to our GoFundMe campaign and an explanation of how to donate by mail on our website, bobcudmore.com. Thank you. Good morning, Bob. This is Giovanni Rishiti. Honored to be here to talk about my book, Cobblestones, Conversations, and Corks. It's a memoir that I wrote 2020 to celebrate my, my life, my father's life, and his story as an Italian immigrant coming over in 1958 after World War II. Right before he passed away, it was something he asked me to do. He, he lived this very interesting, inspiring life. He said, you know, someone should tell our, our family story, and, and that's what I sought out to do. This is the Historian's Podcast, and I'm Bob Cudmore. Giovanni Ruscitti is author of the memoir, Cobblestones, Conversations, and Corks, A Son's Discovery of His Italian Heritage. You went back to Italy with your father. What was that like? As a first-generation Italian-American, I, I had always identified myself as Italian, but Bob, the, the tragic thing, I'd never been there until I was 46 years old. And I, I went in 2013, and, you know, my, my dad was a great storyteller. If he told a story once, he, he told it a thousand times. And he told a lot of stories of, of World War II and how it impacted him and his family. Th- those stories had no context for me, you know, living in the United States and living in Colorado. You know, I never really saw war. The only thing I saw was on the news. Um, but going back on that trip, th- those stories that I'd heard so many times, they, they really came to life. I had this great appreciation for what he had been through and what my entire family had been through. This is a very small town, if you will, in in Italy, is it not? Yeah, I don't know if you know much about central Italy. Um, central Italy, especially this, this region called Abruzzo, doesn't get a lot of publicity. It's not as you know, sexy as places like Piedmont or Tuscany or the Amalfi Coast. But uh, Abruzzo is a very mountainous region. Um, it's about an hour and a half, two hours uh, east of Rome, uh, so it's really right in the center of of Italy. Uh, the towns are all very small. There, there's there's no really there's no big cities there. You know, maybe some cities that get to 100,000 people. But my parents' town, the biggest it ever was, uh, was about 3,000 people. It's a it's a town that was, or I should say, is over a thousand years old. But today, there's only about 200 people left in the town. Um, unfortunately, it didn't really survive World War II. Um, it didn't suffer a lot of damage from, from bombs, although there was some. What happened was is people left after the war, and it was, it was largely abandoned and is now in a dilapidated state. But it's a, it's a great town where there's so much rich culture and history. The, the homes are beautiful. The people are sincere and warm. Uh, it's just a great place. Uh, it's a great place to visit. I'm going back in October. Uh, it's one of those places, Bob, where I can truly relax and um, be present in that moment. And when you were growing up, you had kind of a different uh, upbringing than a lot of people in in Colorado, I would say. As the son of Italian immigrants, and my, my grandparents all had immigrated around the same time, uh, I, I didn't have what you would call a normal upbringing. You know, when I was six or seven and other kids were out riding their bikes and playing catch and doing kids that, things that kids do, I was hanging out with these old Italian men, and uh, we were butchering goats and making wine and making prosciutto and making dried sausages and cheeses. And I was helping my dad uh, build houses and doing all these things that uh, other people my age were not doing. And, you know, I, I, 
obviously I, I wanted to be doing what other kids my age were doing, so I resented it a little bit. But you know, my even my language, I, I first language was Italian. I didn't speak English until I was five or six. So I, I, I spent all this time with with these mostly, like I said, these old men, my my grandfather, father, and, and uncles and great uncles, and and uh, they taught me to do a lot of things that I didn't really come to appreciate until I was older. And, and when I did this trip that I mentioned in 2013, I realized that I, I was actually blessed for having had that opportunity to spend all this time with them and, and to hear, you know, hear them tell these stories and, and to learn from them. And what I, what I really appreciated was, you know, they, they had this strong worth at work ethic and desire to succeed, each one of them. They, they came here with nothing, right? The true shirt on their back story. Uh, my dad had uh, a fifth grade education when he came here in 1958 at age 21, he had really only what he was bringing with him, which was not much, couldn't speak the language, couldn't read or write, and couldn't do any of those things, but he worked very hard, as did everyone else that immigrated over. And what I didn't realize, I had always been a hard worker, but it had helped frame and form who I was, and you know, he always pushed us to get a better education, and that's what drove me eventually to get, a, get an MBA and get a law degree and, and get a legal career started. Talk about spending a lot of time with the old men of uh, who had come over from Italy. What about the women, the old women? I mean, the, your grandmothers and things like that. Oh, yeah. I spent a lot of time with my grandma Filomena and my, my grandma Nunziata. They, they were classic Italian old, old ladies. And, you know, if you think about the culture, of course, everyone had their role. And so you know, the men, and, and thank goodness society has changed, but back then, in the 50s and 60s, you know, the men would go off and work, and the women stayed home and took care of the homes, and, and our, the family that I, you know, my, my parents were just like that, and so as a young boy, I would, for example, my grandma Philomena, um, her husband, my husband, my grandfather Rocco, passed away in 1965, the year before I was born. She wore black every day thereafter, kind of an old Italian tradition. Sure. Um, and she was very Catholic, and she would take me to church every every weekend. Um, and so I remember doing that with her. And then my grandma Nunziata, just so many stories of, of sitting in her house, and she would make these great patels and other Italian cookies. And, of course, uh, all of my memories center around food or wine. Um, and, you know, she was married to my grandfather, Pamphilo, who had the wine cellar that I spent a lot of time in with with them and our, our our focus really was on family you know we we had big family meals big holidays together which is one of those things i think bob unfortunately is lost in today's society you know we, mm. we're, we're in this transactional society too much is is focus on each thing becoming a transaction and we don't spend a lot of time with family um, people move away and it's just a very different world unfortunately today you really do a nice job portraying the wine cellar Sounds like a sort of a murky place, if if you will. But you spend a lot of time there. Yeah, you know, wine has become a big part of um, of my life. I, I love wine. I love to drink wine. I, I started a wine collection recently. I have a nice wine cellar. But yeah, the the thing about wine is it. Um, first off, just the aromas. When you walk into a wine cellar, you have all these things that come alive, like the aromas of wet stone and dark fruit, salt and pepper. It's kind of damp and wet wet earth. You you, you smell old corks and, you know, depending on the types of grapes they're using, you're going to smell maybe some nuts. Um, And then, of course, you have the cellar itself. So you have 
old wood and kind of this musk that becomes kind of intoxicating almost. But one of the other things about wine that I, I really appreciate is it's this thing that brings people together for community. It's a place where you have conversation. And, and for me, early as a young boy, I would listen to these old men have these conversations about the, the wine that they were making. And it just left this impression on me that to this day, kind of, every time I have a, a good glass of wine, the first thing to do, of course, is smell it. Um, if I'm lucky enough to visit a, a, a winery and I'm going back in October, I love walking into the wine cellars because it brings you back to this place when I was a young boy. And then after that, you know, what we would do is every year, so you, you'd make the wine in October, and in December we would make prosciutto. And the Colorado weather, by the way, is very similar to central Italy. So it, they were able to replicate what they knew in Italy. But what we would do every October, we would cut the prosciutto and dried sausages from the prior year. So it became this great little meal that we would have. And my grandmothers would make great pastas and breads, and we'd sit down and have prosciutto. And even as a young boy, they'd pour me a little glass of wine, um, put a little bit of 7-Up or Sprite in there. I, I developed great appreciation for, for the Italian culture and food and wine. And to this day, um, Italian wines are my favorite. Giovanni uh, joins us uh, talking about his uh, book that has to do with the um, discovery of the homeland, uh, Giovanni Ruggiti. And um, the little town that you're from, you, you mentioned Abruzzo, Abruzzo, but it, the, the town itself is Consano, from, uh, I believe. And I, I, let me just run a parallel by you. I'm from, I'm not of Italian d- uh, descent, but I'm from upstate New York, a part of the uh, country where we have a, you know, a number of Italian uh, immigrants. And in my hometown of Amsterdam, uh, we had two Italian sections, and depending on which little village the people came from in Italy. And the one I'll focus on is a little uh, village uh, toward the, the south end of the country uh, called Pishat. And a lot of the um, people that you know came to Amsterdam were from Pishat. It wasn't just like one or two. It was you know maybe scores of people. Was, was that true in your town in, in Colorado? Did a number of folks come from Consano to this uh, section of Colorado? Yeah, what happened after, well, actually it started before World War II. Um, some of the men would immigrate over and start working in places like coal mines. And, you know, it was the only places they could get work. And so a lot of them became coal miners. And what they would do is they'd live here for six months, make money, and fly back home. And eventually they, they started moving over, and they would bring over family members one at a time. But after World War II, Consano never really recovered. Um, the, the book, while it talks a lot about, you know, the, like I said, this love story, there's, there's a lot of discussion in the book about World War II and how central Italy was really whipsawed. Um, you know, Italy initially aligned with Germany and, and the Axis, and, and then... Coming into 1943, they were kind of losing, um, thankfully, they were kind of losing their, their, their strength, and the Allies started coming up through central, uh, or excuse me, through south, southern Italy, through Sicily and, and some of the other parts. And Abruzzo, unfortunately, was right in the center of this. It's in the mountains. What the Nazis did is they came in and they set up camp in all of these little towns, knowing that winter was, 
was about to approach. This was in October, November of 1943. And they wanted to use these little towns as bases to launch surprise attacks on, on the Americans and the, the Polish at the time. And they came to Consano in 1943, as I said, in October. And they initially said, hey, we're going to set up a little command here in the center of town. No one really thought much of it. But then in November, they returned and they laid down an ultimatum for the town uh, and all of its inhabitants. And they, t they told everybody, either you help us as our servants or go move into the hills. And this was at this time November. There was already snow on the ground, and it was going to be a very cold winter. And they had a tough decision. My family and everyone else in that town had a tough decision to make. And some did stay and, and help the Nazis, but most of them actually left and fled and, and moved in the mountains, which is what my family did. They returned in, in June of, of 44. And um, unfortunately, the town was, in, uh, was devastated. Uh, the Nazis had taken everything of value. They had consumed all of the, the food and other things that had been preserved and saved, and they destroyed a lot of other things. And so everyone had to start over. And unfortunately, they were, they were poor going into this, and, and then they were more poor after. And so this, this mass immigration from Consano started, and people went from Consano to a couple places. They went to like Montreal and Toronto, some went down to Australia, but a majority of them came to tiny Frederick, Colorado, which is where I grew up. And I grew up hearing more Italian than I did English, Bob. And as I said, my first language was English I, or Italian. I didn't really learn English until I was in first grade and they were threatening to hold me back uh, because I, I didn't speak the language, language very well. But the town was very much an Italian community. and. You know, going back to the coal mining history, there's a, a monument that they built that I, I go visit every once in a while. Um, it's it's hundreds of names, uh, mostly men, uh, in fact, I think all men, who died in the coal mines. And 90% of those names are Italian, and most of them are from Consano, Italy. So there's that deep connection, just like your story in, in northern New York. Why did they pick this place in Colorado to come to to begin with? Initially, great-grandfathers on both sides of my family um, were looking for work and trying to better their lives. Um, you know, as I mentioned before, the part of Italy that they were from was very poor. They were farmers. They didn't have a lot of resources, but they were happy. You know, they lived a very simple life, but they were, they were looking for more. And so my great-grandfathers on both sides came over um, and started working, and they, they started, obviously on the East Coast and, and moved over. The places where they could get the best jobs were in Colorado. There were a lot of coal mines at the time that were in operation. And, you know, people become creatures of habit. So um, if one family member moved here, they would sponsor another person from that town to come over. And then they ended up all coming over to Frederick. And it, it was an interesting place. It was, it was a place where all these, you could see this desire to improve in all of them. And most of them became very accomplished, and it's remarkable to see. And that, this is really what the, the, one of the inspiring stories about the book. And I think we spend so much time, Bob, talking about celebrities and their accomplishments, but really, in my view, it's the ordinary people that live these extraordinary, inspiring lives that built this country that we should be focused on. And you know, as I was sitting back in, in 2020 watching the world kind of deteriorate in so many ways and remarking back to my, my, my father saying, hey, somebody should should tell our story, 
I decided to write down, sit down and, and write that story. Again, not knowing it was going to get published. Uh, that wasn't my original goal. But after I got the, the story out, I shared it with some people, and they said, wow, you know, this is going to touch a lot of people because we all have stories like this. We all have something, um, a place that we, we come from, and, and we, we forget those stories. Unfortunately, they, they get lost. And you know, so if people have the opportunity to, to sit down and talk to their parents or their grandparents if they're lucky enough to have them still alive or a great-grandparent, aunts and uncles, talk to them. Find out where you're from, even if it's somewhere in the United States. Find out your, your heritage, your history. And mm-hmm. and I think also a big part of it is touching it. You know, I, I the, the book title, as you mentioned, is Cobblestone Conversations and Corks. The cobblestone part comes from touching this town of Consano, quite literally, you know, walking so many miles. I've been there many times now. Um but really getting back to where you're from and, and talking to people and walking it. I, I find that walking the city is, is the best way to get to know it. And so I travel a lot from work there. Um, I love walking. It's not unusual for me to put in 20,000 steps if, uh, when I'm traveling in a different city that I've never been to or even a city that I know quite well. Do you think you'll move there, live there? You know, I, I, uh, being a first-generation Italian-American, it's, it's easier for me to get a dual citizenship. So I've, I've applied for that for myself. Uh, my wife, I've been married 32 years, so my wife and I, her name is Aggie, uh, have applied, and our three kids are Dante, who's 29, and Donato, who's 26, Isabella, who's 23. We've all applied for that. Um, you know, obviously, we're, we're our home is the United States, and that's a big part of, of who we are, of course, but equally a big part of who we are is, is my Italian background. So I will definitely uh, be looking at buying a place. I'll be looking in October when I go back. Um, I don't know that I moved there full time um, as I enjoy. We have so many wonderful things here in the United States that um, that I that I really truly appreciate. But I will definitely have a place to go visit and stay at many times. <laughs> Let me bring up one other point from here in upstate New York. There's a uh, man who came from Fonda, which is near Amsterdam. Amsterdam's where I grew up. His name's Peter Farina. You know, an American. A, a man, but you know, descended from Italian people. He started a company called, I believe it's called Italy Mondo, and now he has moved to Italy, married an it- Italian woman. He um, organizes tours and sort of like um, he organizes individuals who want to find out more about their Italian roots, and it's become a business for him. And my hunch is he's probably not the only one in the world who does that. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, sounds like a great opportunity. Well, I mean, once you go back and you and you get that connection, a part of you comes alive that you didn't know existed, and that's what happened with me. So it's great that he's doing that. And it's kind of funny. I, I'm, I'm not going to go into that line of work. I'm quite busy in what I do as an attorney and an arbitrator and mediator. But... Um, not a, not a month goes by that someone doesn't ask. Well, they tell me, hey, I'm going to Italy. Any recommendations? And uh, I have a lot. So I connect them to wineries and villas to stay at and restaurants in, in most parts of Italy. So I've, I've kind of become a little bit of a, a tour uh, you know, kind of director, so to speak. Giovanni Ruscitti is uh, with us. He's author of a, of a memoir. They, they've gone to, I mean, you call this your book, Cobblestones, Conversations in Corks, a memoir? I started the book really to tell my dad's story, but to do so, I had to find a, a vehicle, a way of doing it. And I decided to tell it through this trip we took in 2013. 
and I had no outline, Bob. I'd never written a book before. This is the first time. What happened was, all of a sudden, I realized I was telling a little bit of my story, and so it became a memoir as opposed to some type of biography. And it, it was about growth and change and you know forgiveness and learning and culture. And it was a very interesting process because, you know, who, who would want to hear my story, right? We, you, if you're a first-time writer, why is your story interesting? So you go through a little bit of that, uh, that self-doubt. But the book is really focused on my father and his life and my parents, but throw, told through my eyes and the life that I lived as a result of all the hard work that they did. You've got a good reaction to it. I see some famous and near-famous people who are uh, who have read the book and enjoyed it. Yeah, I've been very lucky and blessed. Um, it, the book has received a lot of critical acclaim so far. Uh, some some folks who um, who are writers and authors themselves have read it and were inspired by it. But then we've received great reviews really over the last few days. And uh, it launched yesterday. Uh, Radius Book Group launched it yesterday. Uh, so it's available for sale now on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, any place that sells books. But uh, it's already on the top of a number of new release charts for Amazon uh, in really every format that it's been released in. So it's um, I'm very pleased, and, and really it's, it's humbling. I'm honored to be able to share my dad's story, and I've received just in the last 24 hours so many messages from people who read it thanking me for sharing my dad's story. But, but more importantly, and this is what I was, I was hoping would happen, connecting and relating to parts of it that they had in their own lives. And, mm-hmm. and that's really why eventually I made the decision to, to not only make it a, a little piece that I can give to my family and discharge this, this um, promise to my father, but really hopefully have his life inspire others. And so it's, it's been a really remarkable reception that it's received. Another parallel with uh, modern times is there's war in, in Europe right now, the war in uh, Ukraine. What are your thoughts on the implications of this war? I've never understood war, Bob, to be honest with you. Um, it, it's only for the politicians, right? No, it's not for the people. Um, what, what people set out to accomplish is never really accomplished. And instead, what's accomplished is great harm and damage and death. And what I think most people don't realize, because we haven't really been touched by war in the United States, especially in the central part of the states, you don't really get impacted by it. But war impacts people for decades and generations to come. Because, like my family, they had to move out of their town and live in very difficult conditions and extreme poverty and, mis- and misery. Um, and then when they went back to their town, everything that they had worked for was gone. And unfortunately, in Ukraine, I think you're going to see the same thing. And, you know, it, we're going to have this, and we've had it. You know, it wasn't just my, my family's town. And this is the story in every war. Uh, you, you pick any war, you're going to have stories like this where it takes generations sometimes for people to survive. And we really need to learn that there's got to be other ways to solve disputes, diplomacy, conversation, you know, talking. What is the real issue? Finding out the why beneath the why of a dispute. Um, war, war is really no good. And so, unfortunately, the story that my family went through, someone else is going to be impacted the same way. And, and you're going to see probably a lot of immigration. You've seen it already from Ukraine and a lot of similar stories. Uh, but mm-hmm. I'm hopeful that from that, a lot of opportunity springs, you know, like it did for my family. And let me end by asking you about food again. What family recipes do you like to cook with your own uh, wife and children? 
growing up, it was all about the food and wine, and we had so many dishes that my family loved to do. And, and the, well, I'll tell you about what we did last night. Um, we made one of uh, our favorite dishes, uh, polenta, with some sausage and caramelized onions and some roasted peppers and some cheese. And um, it, it's interesting because polenta is such a, it's a peasant meal. It's such a basic meal. You know, it's cornmeal. And in World War II, it's the only food other than, like, dandelions that my family had after they were kicked out of their their town by the Nazis. And I have some funny stories in the book. You know, every time I took my, my dad and my mom to restaurants, um, there's one story in particular where uh, there was a, a salad with dandelions, and also on the menu was polenta. And I'd heard about dandelions. You know, my dad used to tell all the time about how that's all they had to eat. And I said, look, Dad, they, they have dandelions on the menu and also polenta. And and he was just shocked and amazed by that. So we had some funny stories going back and forth. But polenta is a big thing. Of course, pasta. We, we, we made homemade prosciutto. Uh, pasta with fish uh, is a big thing in my family. We would, and I still do this now, we, we, we make a pasta sauce with shrimp or other types of fish. Uh, but really, Bob, the, the dishes are very simple. Simple ingredients, especially in Abruzzo, going back to Abruzzo, it's not over, over the top. It's, it's very basic, clean ingredients. And um, we just like to sit around and, and have that, that sense of community around the dinner table. Giovanni Ruschiti has been talking with us. He's author of the memoir, Cobblestones, Conversations, and Corks, a son's discovery of his Italian heritage. His publicist uh, sent a synopsis, in case you heard the interview, but you're wondering about some of the facts here. Here are some of the facts. On November 11, 1943, the Nazis invaded the village of Consano in central Italy, forcing its 2,000 inhabitants to face a choice, fight and either be killed or sent to a POW camp, stay behind as servants, or take refuge in the unforgiving Apennine Mountains of Abruzzo, where the Nazis used their village as a base of operation. Emiliano Ruschiti's family chose the latter. They went up into the wilderness and spent the next few months living in horrendous conditions in the rugged hills. When the war ended, they returned to a village so ravaged that even today it remains in a dilapidated state. The town has fewer than 200 residents. In this memoir, illustrated with the full-color photo gallery and two maps, Giovanni visits Consano for the first time with his family, including his parents, Emiliano and Maria, As he walks the village's cobblestones, the father's stories and life are illuminated um, by the piazza, the scenic valley, and uh, the surrounding mountains. He relives the tales of his parents' struggles during World War II, their extreme post-war misery, budding romance, and daring decision to emigrate to the United States in search of the American dream. The book also includes an eight-page color photo insert chronicling Giovanni's trip. About the author, Giovanni Ruschiti Esquire 
is a first-generation Italian-American who grew up in Frederick, Colorado, a small coal mining town north of Denver that his parents and grandparents immigrated to in the 1950s. A nationally recognized attorney, he's an arbitrator and a mediator, managing partner of the law firm of Berg Hill Greenleaf Rushidi. He holds a degree in economics and an MBA from the University of Colorado, as well as a legal degree from Denver University. Giovanni and his wife of over 30 years, Aggie Blake Rushidi, have three adult children, Dante, Donato, and Isabella. Giovanni and Aggie currently live outside Boulder, Colorado, where they enjoy traveling, biking, hiking, yoga, and Italian wines.